0: I'm E.J. Ionelli, and this is From the Studio. Our guest this morning is Amy Midstock, a columnist for the Spokesman Review and a contributor to publications such as Out There Outdoors. Her first collection of essays, titled All the Things, is out next week via local publisher, Leita Books. So welcome, Amy. I'm glad you made it here on a on a very snowy morning.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: So the subtitle for this debut collection of essays is Mountain Misadventure, Relationshipping and Other Hazards of an Off-Grid Life, which is a bit of a mouthful.
1: Yeah, and and probably the uh, product of much debate between John and I trying to figure out how do you create a name That is inclusive without being dilutive.
0: Yeah, we start off with the very general all the things because it is about all the things. And then there are some specific uh, themes and topics that kind of emerge.
1: Right, right.
0: So for readers or for listeners, and I suppose readers as well who aren't familiar with your columns, what are some themes that bubble up in your essays and some, I suppose, messages maybe that, that also kind of suffuse the work?
1: Oh gosh! At the at the risk of sounding redundant, we'll say all the things, um, <laughs> which is is uh, probably very much overused in my circle right now. The I think what what is unique about this particular collection is it sort of follows the life of a single mom who's trying to return to the land and live off grid, and optimist that I am um undertaking that adventure was was brave if not dumb. Or as my father would say, if you're gonna be dumb, you better be tough. And so a lot of the stories talk about starting starting with my great optimism of like, oh, I can do I can do anything. We've got this figured out and and really having reality handed to me over and over and over again in all these different forms of catastrophe But really with relatively good outcomes, Um, not necessarily for the varmint, but, um, you know, my house didn't actually burn down. It just came close.
0: (laughs) And yours has never really been a life that's characterized by half measures. You tend to do things to the extreme. If you go in, you are all in. Yes. Yeah, so if you could talk about some of the life decisions, such as the off-gridness of your particular life.
1: Right. I, so I grew up off-grid. So the doing things all in is um, one of some genetic coding that I received from my parents who moved off-grid from California, of course. Um, I'm admitting that publicly right now. Uh, and moved to Idaho to raise their kids off off the grid and um, off the land. And so... I grew up cutting down trees and peeling logs and being homeschooled and then I went and lived in Europe um and when I went through my divorce I had this kid and and this urban life and I thought well how am I going to how am I going to make it now as a as a mom and how do I want to raise my child and so for some reason lots of probably more complicated reasons felt like this was a place for me to return to, to do my healing, but also to help my child heal and have a really wonderful and different life.
0: And I want to talk about healing in a moment because that's something that certainly comes through many of the essays in this collection. But first, I want to revisit very briefly that childhood, because even though that childhood was spent off grid, even that too was characterized by extremes. I think there was one season when you spent, was it a winter in just a single van a camper van
1: smaller so when my parents came here they had one of those campers that sits on the back of a pickup truck Oh wow! and we were five and two dogs and they literally pulled it up the mountain to our 26 acres two miles from um from the nearest property or house and they planted it in the snow they just sat in the snow so the floor was always frozen and the ceiling had like boil marks on it And um, so it blew over at night once with all of us in it, just toppled, (laughs) just toppled over. Um, Yeah, that that was it definitely had some extremes in it. And we were homeschooled, but, you know, we didn't know any different. That was just what we were. That was just life. I feel also like a lot of my memories, even though my childhood was full of some some darker things, a lot of my memories are about that very playful adventure It's kind of like making, you know, a kid loves to make a treehouse. That was my life.
0: And with a childhood like this, or uh, and and adolescence as well, one would think that escape would be in order or some sort of alternative where you would flee to the city and a more uh, urban environment and really relish those creature comforts of warm showers and um, living arrangements that aren't five to a small camper van. Um, But you kind of came full circle and went back off grid. And I'm sure there's more than genetic coding that explains this. So what explains that, that loop from being off grid and being in these cramped quarters, and then going all the way back to that on a granite hilltop?
1: Right, right. That's a good, that's a good question. The, um, and and I think I was satisfied by my adventures all over the world with being able to turn a knob and heat up a room. Um, <laughs> and I think maybe when we've had a different life, what what might be classified as a more extreme life, and your your survival is based on the work that you do every day, whether it's harvesting food or getting your firewood, there's a kind of actualization and... Um, autonomy that comes from that or a learning of self-efficacy that I think I was craving, that there was some deeper truth in me that knew from all of my outdoor adventures that I am my best person when I'm in that environment and when I can um, focus on and relish in the minutiae of like homesteading and getting firewood and shoveling snow and and creating a home in a livable way with my family, it's sort of a maybe like a primal thing.
0: And was there a, a speaking of you know creature comforts? Was there a comfort in the familiarity of that existence as well? Um, so after you you had your your Rumspringa, so to speak. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so after you had that. Yeah, that experience that you returned to this as sort of an anchor or a, a bedrock to some extent.
1: What it was for me, it, it wasn't a familiarity, although that it was to some extent and I didn't have fear of it. I was like, eh, it'll be fine. If my parents could do it on $75 for a winner, I'd be fine. Um, also, I had YouTube and they did not. <laughs> um, it had a lot more to do with having lost so much in my divorce. I lost everything but my bike and my child. Um And starting over and feeling like I could not, I needed something that couldn't be taken away from me. And being able to have this sanctuary that was just ours to, to be in that we could care for ourselves and live a really full life without it being at risk, brought mostly to me a deep sense of um, security and satisfaction and
0: joy. And good fortune or success can emerge out of misfortune mm-hmm. because your whole arc in this career as a columnist started with you being trapped under a boulder, if I'm not mistaken. This, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Could you talk about that that episode in 2014?
1: Uh yeah it's it's not been covered very often EJ. <laughs>
0: um
1: yeah I was out ad- adventuring as single moms do in the mountains with their kids someplace else. Um and really it was uh just a thing that can happen a statistical anomaly my partner uh my climbing partner and I Jason Luthi and I had talked earlier in the day about the danger of what we were doing and how we we underestimate that um, the scree fields that we were crossing were fresh. And it just happened that I, I landed on one that rolled. And so when it rolled and I attempted to stop it with my face, which is not recommended um, as far as 4,000-pound boulders go, it it happened to teeter-totter in that wonky way that rocks do in, in uh, um, fields of rock. And it landed on me. So I tried to crawl out uh, before it came to a stop, but it landed on my foot and I was face down. And so I spent I spent the night. First, I said a lot of swear words and reminded Jason there was a rock on me. It was a lot of like, there's a bleeping rock on me. Get it off. Had, had
0: he forgotten? Yeah. I
1: know. <laughs> he was standing back going, I can't move. It's not safe. And I was like, you're going to need to move over here right now and take care of this situation. So... Uh, that did not work. And I spent, it happened around five at night and rescue came around midnight. And I think it took them about an hour to to remove it. And then there was the whole rest of the rescue. But as far as debacles go in nature, you really couldn't ask for a want well, a better outcome. I still have all my parts. The team was amazing. Um, search and rescue just did a fantastic job, and Jason, of course, is a wilderness uh, teacher. So <laughs> I was with the right the right person.
0: And it, but it was this spokesman, outdoors editor, Rich Landers, mm-hmm. who then covered this yeah. this debacle and then started looking, reviewing some of your writing, and said, "Hey, I think you would actually make a really good columnist." And something that certainly uh, turned out to be true. And he ended up writing the forward to all the things. And I think there was one excerpt from this. He said, "You have an instinct to adopt really bad." ideas which is a a very bizarre compliment
1: there are some strange compliments uh, about my life um rich lander's introduction made me cry i felt so seen (laughs) in all those bizarre compliments um you know when i first met rich i was telling somebody this story the other day i met him i think at an outdoor thing around then and i didn't know who he was and he said oh he writes about the outdoors and i was like oh have you ever heard of these mountains and he was like yeah i have and i was like oh really well what about these mountains and he was like yeah i've i've been there too and um god rich if you're listening i'm i'm so sorry thank you for being so gracious with my ignorance um and that is how our relationship started yeah
0: and I would really like to give listeners a taste of one of the essays that's in this collection. And this has to do with the off-grid existence, but it's certainly something that is, uh, I would say, a familiar experience, regardless of where you live. If you have children, you have probably encountered this. So the, there's the common core.
1: The common core. So I'll read this this essay, and then I'm going to tell you that this morning I went on a run with a friend before, and I said, oh, I'm going to read this essay And I got their horror story, and I thought, that's even worse than mine. That time, a worse nightmare came true. When you live alone in the mountains with a kid, relying on solar power and YouTube instructional videos to keep your house running, you have a different set of fears than the general population. Among mine, a string of cloudy days, carburetor issues on my chainsaw, and head lice. The latter has been a concern of mine since my chicklet attended the hippie socialist kindergarten in the forest of Germany, where lice and ticks were a daily warning. While we plucked many a tick off her tiny body, we somehow managed to escape the infestation of other critters. So as one might imagine, the flood of vitriol that emitted from my vocal cords subsequent to that fatal phone call was hardly appropriate for printed publication. Um, The kids have lice. These phone calls always happen at approximately 10 o'clock in the evening when said single mother is running around like a banshee trying to pack the last items for a desert camping trip departing at sunrise. That is always a super convenient time to locate some head chemo and start shampooing, well, everything. Lice, as far as I'm concerned, are the minor's version of an STD. They even come with all the social stigma and snake oil cures, though I couldn't find anyone treating lice with mercury. This was somewhat of a relief because I'd read Casanova's autobiography, and by the time he died, he'd consumed enough mercury to land himself on the far end of the crazy spectrum. Whereas, prior to that, he was just in the middle but without a moral compass. I immediately set the phone down, finished my swear rant that was beginning to sound like Brooklyn slam poetry, and started combing through my daughter's fine blonde hair. I felt like a primate, except I wasn't compelled to eat anything. Much to my dismay, I found lice. This discovery was followed with a robust heebie-jeebies dance across the bathroom floor, where I hoped that the sheer force of my emotional repulsion would eject the critters. This was not the case. In fact, they seemed perfectly content to wiggle their way along strands of hair, ignoring my hysteria, and doing whatever such parasites do. It was a Thursday, probably trivia night or something at the local dive behind the right ear. Not quite sure what one actually does to eradicate such a visitor, and unable to convince my 11-year-old to shave her head, I briefly considered finding some napalm on the dark web. I couldn't locate any studies confirming the efficacy of this treatment for anything less nefarious than war crimes, so I sourced a box of some ominous-looking shampoo at the pharmacy. They keep it right next to all the other embarrassing purchases, like hemorrhoid cream, prophylactics, and reading glasses. The directions said, leave on for ten minutes, but I left it on until my scalp felt like a gastric ulcer and my child complained of burning eyes. If anything, our hair would just fall out and the problem would resolve itself. After we'd washed our hair and I'd stopped dry heaving, we did no less than 1,400 loads of laundry before sunrise. The last thing you want in the desert is a colony of lice on your scalp, in your tent, far from running water. The second-degree burns on my skin must have been at least moderately effective, and it would appear that the post-shampoo itching was mostly related to the chemical exposure. Surely, no lice would survive that. Ten days later, like life-cycle clockwork, the little buggers reappeared just a few stragglers, genetic anomalies... This time, we were prepared with all the hippie sauce one could imagine, and the world's tiniest comb. Our new nightly ritual is extensive hair care, washing linens and drinking snake oil. Though if I find any more little bugs, I'm going to ignore my own moral compass and invite Monsanto to make me some shampoo. At least these sunny days are keeping the batteries charged for my 24-hour laundering operation, and sleeping in fresh sheets every night isn't half bad either.
0: And this is illustrative of many of the anecdotes that you have. What What is your word count? Around 750 words. I, I found that this is a, a window onto a time period told in like 750 word increments. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sometimes I'm a little shy and sometimes I really get a little long-winded.
0: But this anecdote here, and I, it reminds me of the mice living in your oven. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> my house has been like a condo for so many different creative creatures, whether it was woodpeckers that made a, a lovely entrance on the east wall of my house and the squirrels moved in there for a while and then the wasps. And I believe there's a story individually for each tenant of that particular hole. And the the mice that had a very cozy space forevermore when I baked, it always sort of smelled like mice
0: and we have these these animal tenants and insect tenants who appear in a lot of these essays but you certainly don't shy away from some of the tougher material you know there's a friend of yours who has terminal cancer one essay starts off with i lost a friend to suicide and so i'd like you to talk maybe with candor about some of that candor and how much you choose to reveal in these essays and how much you choose to share with your with your readers
1: mm. That's that's really an interesting balance because well first of all I write in the newspaper so in real life I swear a lot more. Speaking of candor, I'm really going to try to get through this without that today. Um the I try to be real about those things that we actually are experiencing in life. Because we all have friends who have committed suicide or have lost family members due to it and friends. And we definitely are having friends with cancer. And those are, I think, the moments in life that really bring perspective and commonality for us. I like to write about them with with tenderness and vulnerability. And I think um, what's not explicit in this this book is... The nature of the the extensive abuse and the hardship in in my life. And in my work through through writing, what I've really come to do is try to be inclusive of those realities and through this lens of often seen as self-deprecation, um, but also just not taking ourselves too seriously and and trying to find out what it is that we should take seriously. And I would argue it's what we care about, the things that we care about. And so I I like, while unfortunately I don't like bad things to happen in my life or in my circle of friends, I do like to write about those things in meaningful ways.
0: And is writing therapeutic for you? Because here's where we come back to the topic of healing and this notion of healing comes through many of the essays, and I should note that you're accompanied in the studio today by Freya, who many readers will know from these essays, who is a service dog, uh, who fulfills this or fills this therapeutic role in your life as well as others' lives. If you could talk about how healing factors in and the process of healing factors into these essays.
1: That... That I think is probably true for a lot of people who write or journal or have any sort of creative expression. That that there is some sort of therapeutic component to it. Um, mine is probably in that introspection piece of of once I sit down and I start hammering away at some some story, what comes out at the end is never what I expect to come out um, from from my starting point, and it's usually a reflective process of how ridiculous or obtuse i am and it takes me you know 500 words to come to that realization <laughs> um the healing part in a lot of ways i think for my work when i look back at it and i'm and i've talked about this with this particular book when i look at my grammar and my sentence structure in these early essays which are you know almost a decade old i see i i cringe a little and go oh man, that girl's got a lot to learn, whether it's how I view life or um, how I end a sentence with a preposition. And what it's teaching me as part of my healing is like how far we can come and um, how, how much differently I view parenting now than I did then. Sometimes the writing itself is therapeutic, maybe less so in my columns, um, there were times when things shook me. The, the series, there's a couple in here that talk about a pregnancy and a miscarriage, and that was therapeutic to, to speak openly about something that we keep often very close to ourselves in our culture, that we don't talk about miscarriage in particular. And it felt cathartic to me to be able to just state, like, this is what I'm going through in my life right now. And I, my hope for sharing those things is that other people open their own hearts to whatever they're going through because the most healing thing is to be able to share.
0: And was there a deliberative process prior to putting pen to paper where you said, do I share this? Is this something I am comfortable sharing with my readership? Or is there perhaps an intimacy there that you've established over the years where you do feel entirely comfortable doing so?
1: you know we all censor um i censor because i'm writing most mostly for the spokesman review and out there and i want to be nobody nobody opening the paper is going to expect some gut wrenching thing to <laughs> pop off the page so there there is some consideration to um not break anybody's heart on a thursday morning the um or just be too raw so I think that um, – I'm trying to remember exactly the words of your question there. Like they're
0: The deliberative process and just how much – whether or not you choose to self-censor and the intimacy that you've established. Have you, for example, become more comfortable sharing more personal topics over the years?
1: Right. I am too comfortable sharing personal <laughs> topics. It's uh, potentially a problem. Um, so – I, you know, I work in a therapeutic environment. I have a nutrition clinic and I specialize in trauma. And so I I have a way of communication that really is accepting and like, oh, let's just bring everything out there. So there are sometimes a deliberate, a deliberate decision process of like, I'm going to write about this thing because I think the world needs to hear it, not necessarily my story, but the topic or the content of it. Um, But that's not – there are things I don't write about. There's. I'm following up with another memoir piece Um, as soon as I get to writing it. Um, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And that is a much more exposed bit of literature. But the people who read it get to choose. They're not just opening the paper. They're like, oh, I think I do want to read Amy's darker stories or I'm comfortable reading these things and – There's not a trigger warning or anything on it, but um, I think there are different uh, mediums and venues for different parts of our voices and that they can all be authentic.
0: And speaking of different venues, this has resonated with audiences and you have moved the Northwest Passages event, which was already in a good mid-sized space at the Central Library and that's moved to the Bing next week. Are you encouraged by that response? So
1: this is all very, very new for me. Um, I am a middle child, so putting me on a stage in front of a bunch of people is like my birthday wish. Um, I, I, I don't have any comparison to make. I don't know what, what the usual process is for a book launch. So people tell me like, okay, we're gonna go here. That sounds good. And then it's oh, we got to move to the Bing. And um, you know, I'll be texting John and bragging about it, but I'll sort of pretend to be more humble.
0: John being?
1: John of, of Leita Books, John Gosh of Leita Books, my publisher, who is amazing. He has held my hand for years now, and I think he deserves some sort of blue ribbon or something for tolerating me.
0: We just featured John on Thursday Arts Preview yesterday, so if listeners want to know a bit more, they can hear about the other authors on Le- on the Leita Books roster well. What, as he has well. other authors? <laughs> You, you wouldn't know it because he, he came with uh, high praise for you. Oh, great. <laughs> well, Amy, thank you so much for coming in today. I really appreciate it. And again, once again, thanks for braving the snow.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: I've been speaking with Amy Midstock, whose debut essay collection, All the Things, is out next week on Leita Books. As part of the launch of All the Things, Amy is appearing with the Spokesman Review's Northwest Passages on Wednesday, March 15th at the Bing Crosby Theater. More information is at spokesman.com forward slash Northwest hyphen passages.